Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue tonight with our exploration of what can a yogi understand from what Jesus said and did, to which extent there is a cross-fertilization between the study and practice of yoga in a spiritual dimension and the message of the Christ, the Christ being supposed to be God manifested in a human body and therefore his existence meaning to be a sort of a model, a spiritual model like follow that, nobody can quite do that but uh, if you could come close to it that would be a great thing. And uh, we concluded last time with Jesus uh, being very much a Robin Hood, being very much topsy-turvy, putting putting very much the whole world upside down. Like uh, those who want to save their life, they're actually going to lose it. Those who will lose their lives for me will actually save it. And if what is if you make the whole world, if you gain the whole world, but then you lost your soul in exchange, then you've got nothing. And he realizes, I'm setting such a high goal that most people will be saying, uh, no, you know. And then he says, many people will say, come on, this guy is too much. And then he says, if you are going to be ashamed with me, then I'm also going to be ashamed with you. You know, it's as simple as that. You don't like me, I don't like you. You don't put in the shoulder for me, I'm not going to put my shoulder in for you. And it's as simple as that, until you will wake up. It's a very cruel, it's a very, here we see some of this Manipura Jewish God kind of thing, you know, that there is also a dimension on Manipura where for God you have to be honorable, you have to be loyal, you have to be devoted, you have to be in this way. So, then he concluded by the sentence where he promised that uh, there will be many people in his audience who will see God before they die, like he promised that some people will receive concrete results. See, ultimately, a guru doesn't know you say, well, a guru should know. Not really. Like Ramana Maharishi was a wonderful yogi and a wonderful person and very pure. And when he died, he himself could not see one single person in his disciples that could sit where he sat, that he could take over. No? So Ramana Maharishi, for example, could not promise, if you will stay besides me, some of you will see God before you taste death. Because actually it was not true. There were people who have been with Ramana Maharishi 30 years and they did not see God. Not because Ramana Maharishi was a bad guru. But God doesn't have the same plans with Jesus and with Ramana Maharishi. One means something and another one means something else. One has the function to do this, another one has the function to do that. Therefore, even spiritual masters are not equal in the eyes of Shiva. And therefore, they will have different effect upon the world, different realizations upon the world. But Jesus kind of knew it. He promised. He says, there are people in this room who will see God before they taste death. 
And then, of course, you realize that Jesus is proposing, we usually say this anahata thing, not Manipura. The Jews were trying to connect to God on Manipura, to be honorable, to be loyal, to be correct, to be kadosh, to do 826 things every day, which will keep them pleasurable to God and so on. While Jesus says, if you can just be in Anahata 100%, then you don't need to bother about all those rules. Like he himself is breaking the Sabbath, not washing his hands, eating out of the temple offerings, and doing a few other crazy stuff, which was definitely not kadosh, not holy for the Jews, not kosher, if you prefer another Jewish word, for the Jews of the day. And still Jesus gets away with it. And he says, you have a choice. You stay on Manipura and do 826 things, or you become gone Anahata and forgive everybody and love your enemies and do the uh, 10 things which I told you to do, and then that will be good enough. It's a more simple way. It's more simple, but so much more difficult. On this planet Earth, it's not completely, completely impossible because human beings are dominated by the first four chakras and the first four elements. That's something which happens in astrology. In this room now, there are people who are dominantly Earth, dominantly water, dominantly fire, and dominantly air. And those of you that happen to have a lot of air, you have a lot of connections with Anahata Chakra. So Anahata Chakra is not a city in China. If Jesus would have said everybody should be on Vishuddha, everybody should be on Ajna, that would have been like more unrealistic. But theoretically, if Jesus says you should be more on Anahata, it's like, hey, there is 25% of the humanity, or there should be, there, is, there should be 25% of the humanity that should be air signs or having proportional air. Air is one of the equal four elements in astrology. No? So at least we would have about 25% that could show us a little bit of anahata, a little bit of air. Now when I look at life after so many years of yoga and having taught it, I would say that um, although mathematically it should be so, maybe it doesn't quite work that way. Maybe there are 10% which are on Anahata. But hey, 10% is still a reasonable percentage. Like one person in 10, maybe not all of them in the same country. Maybe more of them in India. Maybe more of them in Russia. Maybe more of them in Romania or some other places. And there will be places where there is more Anahata chakra. And then, you know, it's not such a wild ideal. But still, if the human being is somewhere oscillated between Svadhisthana and Manipura, with more emphasis on Svadhisthana than on Manipura, like still Svadhisthana is the dominant chakra, then Anahata is, you know, like Manipura is like, ha, you got to Manipura, you are a free spirit, you are a samurai, you have a spine, you are standing vertically, you can take on the world, you can, you know, like you are not afraid, you are, you know, you can be left alone and you'll still do what is the right thing and all that. 
which so many religions have a lot of Manipura, not only Judaism, but there is a lot of Manipura in Islam, there is a lot of Manipura in Buddhism as well, and many other religions have a lot of Manipura, because Manipura, you know, religion plus Manipura is uh, more easy to accomplish. Many Westerners today, they are hypocrites. They say, Manipura, we don't like religion, has to be with the heart. But the stupid thing is that most of these people who say this, and who may be English, American, Italian, or French, they have no anahata. And they keep on preaching, so it's a hypocrisy. You know, they keep on preaching like we don't want a religion with Manipura, but they don't have one with Anahata. That Anahata is a city in China. And therefore, here there is a point because Jesus is like pushing the things further. The, 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 the lifestyle which Jesus suggests is almost too good to be true for the regular life. Here and there, there are communities and so on which may reach a little bit of that, but it's rare. It's rare. And it doesn't fit in this world. For example, um, United Nations, five years ago or something, they made a statistic that people are still persecuted for their religion. Either it's ethnic, like the Kurdish people may have some persecution, and they also have a certain religion, a certain variety of Islam or Christianity or whatever they have, Yazidi or whatever other minor religions of the Middle East, but the point is that United Nations, which is a deeply atheistic organization and secular, it simply came up with the conclusion five years ago. The religious minority or denomination which is most persecuted on this planet is Christianity. Like Christianity are gluttons for punishment. They are asking for it. They want to carry a cross on their shoulder. That's what their beloved Jesus did. And they are taught that if you are hit on one cheek, you should turn the other as well. And if somebody asks for your shirt, give him your coat as well. That's a sure recipe for, you know, like we tried in Agama to behave nicely when all this started and, you know, not to strike back. And it didn't matter that we looked like we were fallen to the ground. The people around still kicked us hard when we were rolling on the floor. No? Even when we were fallen, people were just continuing hitting us. It didn't matter, like nobody has the decency saying, look, these people are not striking back. They try to be on anahata. They try to cultivate this or that. They try to come from the heart. So come on, don't be so harsh on them. It doesn't matter at all. People will come on hard, even if you try to be like the dove of peace. Even the dove of peace gets shot and fried, barbecued and eaten eventually. You know, it doesn't matter it was the dove of peace. So therefore, what I'm trying to say here is Jesus is suggesting a high ideal. And he has to do something for it. Like That's why Jesus is pushing so much for it. And he performs miracles, and there is so much for it. Because he is also asking for much, you know. The people around him, they say, yeah, it all sounds very beautiful, no, but we don't see it happening, and we don't see it. What to do, what to do, you know, in, in this situation. And again, Jesus has to 
compensate in many ways for it. He is asking for a degree of perfection which is not easy to accomplish. And that's why uh, there are many, many things like Jesus says, I am against the world. He says in another place, I have vanquished the world. He talks like he is Genghis Khan multiplied by ten. You know, he simply says, I have vanquished the world. Like everything which is in the world, shit, ego, ignorance, darkness, misery, possession, possessiveness, materialism, I have trampled on them like Genghis Khan. I am the conqueror of all the hellish things. This world has nothing which it can put against me. So he basically behaves like a Milarepa. He behaves like more than Milarepa. No, he basically says, my spirit is so strong, my tapasya is so strong, that there is nothing in this world which can come against me. There is no temptation or anything which can compete with what I've got to offer. So he's going really hard on these things, but remember, here is precisely the point that he has a lot to compensate for because he has to offer something which is he he's setting the standards high you know there is a proverb which is quoted in your yoga courses in the first level if i remember correctly which says if you want it's an arabian proverb which says if you want to set your path straight attach your chariot to a star because only the stars are far, far, far away. And when you put your direction with a star, you don't lose your direction. If you put your direction according to the wind or according to a tree or according you will wobble. But with a star you never wobble because it's so far away that it can go. The way to that star can be only straight, straight, straight. So that means attach your chariot to a star, which means choose a superhuman goal. Choose something which is unattainable, but which will make you like, you know, to like this Don Quixote song, for those of you who know the British musical, where he says, to reach the unreachable star, to fight the unfightable battle, to defeat the invincible foe. That is my quest, you know? Like to do something impossible, to reach the unreachable star. And Jesus is coming with the unreachable star. And therefore he simply says, I'm giving to you a goal which is almost bigger than life. And therefore, here the task, the thing which is to be done is very great. Consequently, just after this, there comes the episode in the Bible which is for some Christian mystics, it is the most significant episode in the life of Jesus, perhaps more significant than the crucifixion. It is the one called the transfiguration. And while we use the word of transfiguration in Tantra, gender-oriented, that every man is Shiva and every woman is Shakti, um, and it, the, mean, the general meaning of the word is the same, in the case of Jesus, the transfiguration has not a gender-oriented thing. In the case of Jesus, it has the same thing. That if you look carefully at a woman, you will see the goddess that is behind the scenes. 
if you look carefully at Jesus, and especially if Jesus allows it, if Jesus allows to pull the curtain a little bit, then you can actually see who he truly is. Because normally, Maya is hiding it. I'm telling you, you know, Jesus could come and just shine light and come in chariots of fire pulled by the gods and angels and everybody would throw themselves to the ground. But even Jesus did not do that because what, what God gave him to do was to shake the world. But not to shake the world too much. Because too much would have simply interrupted the existence of Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga wouldn't have been Kali Yuga if Jesus would have shaken the tree, shaken the lie, the planet, too much. So this thing which Jesus did is relatively big and amazing. But it's by far not even close to what Jesus could have done. But it was not permitted. It was not on the roster. It was not on the to-do list. Jesus had to do what he did and not more. See, everybody would like to see a sort of a definitive victory. The definite victory has been seen by the Christian saints only on doomsday. Only when you get to the judgment day. And when you get to the judgment day, it's too late to do anything about it because everything is, the line has been drawn already. And therefore, there will be an apocalypse in Greek. The apocalypse means knowledge, awakening. So there will be an apocalypse. But that apocalypse will come after the referee has blown the final whistle. <laughs> and now let's see what was the true face of things. Like too late for anybody to correct even one millimeter of what has been done. And therefore, there will be, there is a revelation. Every soul eventually sees their mistakes, their good things, sees the guardian angel, and implicitly sees God. But not as long as they are in the test. You finish a test in the university, as soon as the teacher took the papers, you can open your manual and look and say, oh, I didn't do it quite right. Then you can open the handbooks when the exam is finished. Not before the end of the exam. This shows very clearly that our lives, our existence on earth, they are an exam. They are a non-stop exam. And we have to make choices. And we have to make choices in this limbo, in this twilight zone where we don't see for sure. Ah, of course I can forgive that guy. But will it bring any benefit really if I would forgive them. Like, yeah, sure, Jesus said forgive them 70 times 7. But honestly, does anybody believe in what Jesus said? You know, it's like uh, in the end when somebody steps on your toes, it's very difficult to rise to that level. And therefore we say yes, yes, we love Jesus and all that. But in real life you don't see that. All the so-called Christian countries... Like Sundar Singh said, I've been to the Christian lands and found no Christians. Because most of them behave on Svadhisthana Manipura. The government, if somebody kills one of my people, I'm going to kill ten of your people. It's at least a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye, which is a law of Manipura. 
not at all the law of Jesus on Anahata. No? And therefore, um, we say, but ultimately when it comes to applying Jesus to our lives, it's like, yeah, you know, I tried, but I think it was too difficult. No? Mahatma Gandhi somehow, somehow desperately on the edge managed to keep some non-violence in India, some, not completely, some non-violence in India during the, for the independence of India. No? Then they tried the same thing in South Africa with Nelson Mandela and all those. They were not as refined as Mahatma Gandhi. They didn't have the richness of the Indian Vedas and Upanishads behind to support them morally and spiritually. They did not have the Anahata which was given to Mahatma Gandhi by the soul of India. So what did the African National Congress do with Nelson Mandela? They did bombs, they did Kalashnikovs, they did whatever. And then when they were asked, you said it will be a non-violent revolution, a la Gandhi, civil disobedience only. And Nelson Mandela gave a politician's answer where he said, we tried but we could not, so eventually we had to do whatever we had to do. They were supported by the Russians, they were buying grenades and bombs and Kalashnikovs from the Russians, you know, and so it's like, where was the non-violent revolution? Because not everybody is Gandhi. So that's why uh, it's very difficult to go to this level where Anahata speaks. And one of the things is that the Jesus, and you can take it in both ways, that Jesus needed to recharge his batteries, that Jesus needed to touch base for himself, because don't forget, Jesus was in a human body. And being in a human body, he slept, because nobody says in the Bible he didn't sleep. They would have said, we were all a bunch of lazy bones, and we had to sleep six hours per night, and our Lord was sitting up and waiting for us patiently, because he never slept. It would have been noticed, it would have been written down, because it was an outstanding thing. If it's not written down, it means Jesus kept an appearance of normality. He was sleeping. Maybe somebody would say, yeah, well, you know, if we go into details, he was sleeping little. He was sleeping five hours per night. But he was sleeping. He must have been making pee-pee, caca. We know that he was eating food. We know that he was drinking drinks. So his metabolism, his life on earth, looked like the life of a human being. Because otherwise, any unusual thing like this, it would have been mentioned immediately about Jesus. They say he was going and being lonely sometimes. He was going and doing this. He was like, a lot of details are said, and it's impossible that such big details, like uh, Jesus was like Therese Neumann. He was never eating anything. No, he was, obviously he was eating, and he was given to other people food to eat, so he was not a breatharian, he was none of these things. So, therefore, Jesus, having a human body, had a human brain, had a human mind, yes, this mind must have been extremely vast, extremely powerful, extremely pure, full of a faith which is unfathomable.
But even when they crucified him and he was in agony and things were not brilliant anymore and he was holding his horses, he wailed. He complained. He said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you left me? Like he felt without God for one hour and 25 minutes or whatever that time was. But he was agonizing in a state where even the bhakti would not work. It would be like, boom. Therese of Lisieux, the French saint who died of tuberculosis at the age of 24, she did not feel Jesus for one or two years before she died because her lungs were eaten by tuberculosis. She probably died with 5% pulmonary capacity. Imagine the pain you have pain from a little asthma, but when you have 10% lungs left, must be constant pain. And her anahata in the physical level was messed up completely, was destroyed. And she was not feeling Jesus. And she said, she is just playing a prank on me because he tests me if I can love him even if I don't feel him. And she said, yes, I can love him even if I don't feel him. And I can just realize that he is playing a practical joke. It's like a test which is playing on me and my love is given forever. I have given my life forever and I shall never take it back even if I suffer like in hell. That's real love. And thus, in the same way you can say that Jesus, having a human brain, sometimes there were, you know, he, he needed to touch base. So the event which comes, the transfiguration, is on one hand Jesus going and saying, where are you pushing me? What's coming next? I've been raising two people from their graves already. How far is this going to go on? Like I'm on a roll. I'm, you know, I caught the wave here. And uh, how far will this go? Is this only for the Jewish people? Because I started having Roman soldiers coming and asking for my assistance. Where is this going? Like Jesus needs to look in the eyes of God and to see, you know, it's like, am I okay? Am I still on? Am I aligned? Because he has a human brain. And his human brain produces doubts. I'll tell you, so the event which happens, it's a need for Jesus. But it's also a need for the community because he takes three disciples with him, Peter, John, and James. Actually, in the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas says that he was there also. So there is there some, they say it was Peter. He says there were Peter, John, and Thomas, but still three. And he took them on a mountain which still exists in today Israel, Mount Tabor. And on that mountain, he communed with God. But he communed with God more than just having a prayer. Or just like you would say, well, if Jesus was meditating, if you looked carefully, you could see a bluish haze around him. People could see bluish light around the body of Ramakrishna. When Ramakrishna had intense states of ecstasy, in the dark, he was lying down on the floor, like fainted, and his body was like E.T. You know, his body was with some slight, very, very gentle blue light around it. 
Sometimes when the ecstasies were very physical and intense, he was losing blood through the pores of his skin. He was sweating blood. Ramakrishna. So like, maybe Jesus when he was going really, we know that Jesus at some point he sweated blood. And maybe if somebody would look carefully, they would see a halo around his head, especially when he was deep, deep into it, full on into it. But this was still the average level for everybody, the daily life level. There was a level where Jesus could go more full on, more full on, like cranking it up to a level which the others have not seen him there. No, it's not something which he would show. So even in this situation, he, did it, he didn't do it in front of the 5,000 people to whom he created bread and fish. To create bread and fish, people would have said, he's like David Copperfield. He is like Sai Baba. You know, he just has slights of hand and all that because when they started catching Sai Baba that he was giving watches, wrist watches to people, but the wristwatches, they are manufactured, good ones, eh? and they are manufactured by a factory. And when they opened them, they had serial numbers. And with a serial number, you can identify in which month and day that wristwatch was done. And they asked Sai Baba, how comes that you materialize wristwatches which have serial numbers which come from a factory in Japan or in Switzerland? And he said, oh, we are just buying them and bringing them into a storehouse and I kind of dematerialize them from the storehouse and materialize them for you. That's why there was so much suspicion with Sai Baba, this uh, Afro haircut Sai Baba, that he was bullshit, that he was not the real thing. There were many other stories there. So, uh, again, Jesus, people would have said, yeah, he gave bread and fish. It was from his sleeve, you know. He just had a pile of them back there, and he was just very skillful and prepare, pretending it just got materialized. But they were smart, and they knew there would be 5,000 people. And they, like people are capable to be skeptical, even when that is happening. No? So, he didn't do the transfiguration, in front of the crowds. Actually, he didn't do the transfiguration in front of all the 12 disciples. Like these three came back and they said, whoa, if you would see what we have seen. But it's exactly like somebody says, I have been with Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati and he showed me something extraordinary. Yes, no, maybe... Maybe it's propaganda. Maybe those three people were the dream team of Jesus and they were bullshitting for Jesus, you know? Like it already creates the situation like maybe you didn't see it right. Maybe you are not telling the complete truth or you are distorting it. Something. And it's on purpose. Like this could not have been shown like this. And basically what's happening is that in this one, Jesus goes the full Monty. Like he goes into a state of Samyama. He kind of looks in the eyes of God. And one of the first things which happens is that his body starts turning into light. 
which is of course the reality of all things. But we are not given to see that. Ramakrishna put one of his disciples in the form of Samadhi and this guy was going around for hours and hours saying, wherever I look I see the light, everything is made, look my body is made of light and so on, you know, and then Ramakrishna after a few hours, he simply got bored of it, he got almost irritated and he said, Mother Kali, stop it, this jerk is going to bugger us all, all day long, you know it's like, okay, you've seen it, now you're going to see it again when you die you know, like, leave me alone, you know, it's like don't come up with, you know, like too much enthusiasm, now you're you are like a puppy running around in circles, yelling of what a great thing you've seen. Like he says, we all see it, you know, it's not, ultimately it, it should belong to the normality. But in the case of Jesus, it was like Jesus shown like the sun. We have seen other examples where this has happened, even to other spiritual beings, and it shows just a state of communion which is hard to fathom. For example, Seraphim of Sarov, a Russian saint from the 19th century, he did it. And he did it in front of one man who was not a monk in the monastery. He was a man with great heart and great humbleness that Seraphim thought he was more spiritual than all the monks in the monastery where he lived. Because this man had been crippled in the war and he had uh, one leg shorter or something. So because he was a cripple, he was very humble. He was very humble because he had lost his physical strength. And then as a man, he had become humbled. And Seraphim loved his humbleness, that he was not arrogant in any way. And one day, he showed him. He showed him the thing. And there is a famous, just the guy, this officer, ex-officer in the Russian Imperial Army, is was called Motovilov. And Seraphim, just Google, Seraphim Motovilov vision or something, and you are going to see that one day, Motov, he told him that the Holy Spirit is very important as the active part of Godhead, like we say in Kashmiri Shaivism about the Shakti aspect. And then Motovilov did not understand. He says, how is this Holy Spirit? What is it actually? You know, because we speak about Holy Spirit. Nobody really knows except that we have some symbolic drawing, like flames over the head and stuff. But it's like, it's all very... I can't relate. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And what is it? And then Seraphim took the initiative and showed him. And he said, look, look in my direction, look towards me. And eventually, he started shining so strong that Motovilov could not look at him. He had to turn his face away like you would have the sun right in front of you and it would blind you. The face of Seraphim, the head of Seraphim became like the sun. It was shining in a dazzling way. And when he turned his head, then he could see that the whole forest had become made of the same light and of the same. And even the snowflakes, it was snowing. They were somewhere in northern Russia, and it was fucking cold, and it was snowing. And even the snowflakes were made of the same light, and the whole universe, it was like he was in a Walt Disney movie suddenly. So there were people who have seen this special light, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit as a light, because it can manifest as sound, and it can manifest as an energy as well. 
So Jesus is just doing it. Two, twofold. One, for him to touch base. And for the other people, okay, three are allowed. God allowed him to take three, maybe four, as witnesses to this formidable event. And then, no more. So the event is like, uh, how many people have seen it? No? Are we sure about this? You see, this light... Let me just read a little bit and then I will tell you the beautiful story which results from this. About eight days after Jesus said this, so they had walked because Mount Tavor is not near the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had been near the lake there and now he had walked westward in the inside of the land. Took him eight days because they were probably stopping in every village and taking it easy. He didn't have any trip to do. He was just preaching. And then he took Peter, John and James or according to another version Peter, John and Thomas Peter is very meaningful because he just said to Jesus you are the Messiah. So Jesus said okay you must have had some real revelation to have seen this one. (laughs) And Peter was kind of the leader of the pack the man with the most leadership there. John is called in many, like in the Gospel of John, he is called the disciple that Jesus loved. Like it appears, like Jesus had a, like John was like a cat, like the pet of the pet of Jesus. He was very soft, very loving. He would come to Jesus and put his head on his shoulder and say, "Can I give you something? How are you today?" Like he was. Not uh, so much a grumpy person or something. He was a very soft person. Not John the Baptist. This is another John. John who was the Apostle of Christ. And he seems like a man with a lot of natural anahata or something like this. And um, this John, for example, received a very special thing. Like Jesus at some point told to Peter, you are going to be tied up and uh, persecuted. No, like predicting his future, prophesizing his future. And Peter immediately looked at John and said, but he... And Jesus said, well, fuck off, you know, I don't want... This one will not get any trouble. Like, funnily enough, 11 of the 12 apostles became assassinated. Even Thomas, who went to India in Kerala, even Thomas was assassinated. But not John. John was persecuted, but not assassinated, not tortured too much and so on. And he lived 101, 102 years in the island of Patmos, which is in the Mediterranean, the eastern Mediterranean, close to the coast of Turkey, but politically belonging to Greece nowadays. So, what I'm trying to say is John was a bit special. He is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And somehow Jesus gave him a special dharma, a special existence. And this John wrote the final book in the Bible, the famous book of Revelation. It's the revelation of John. He was old and he saw the future of humanity and the end of days, the end of the Kali Yuga, when it will happen, approximately how it will happen. So Peter, John were big James. You have heard more about Thomas than about James. Because Thomas was 
the unbelieving Gemini, the doubting Gemini guy, he went to India, not go, went to Rome or something. So he was a bit of a peculiar disciple and he wrote a gospel. There is a gospel of Thomas. So, of course you would say Peter, John, and probably Thomas if you want to select some. But James, why not? So this version says that Peter, John, and James were taken with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. It's like I'm telling you I'm going to take Fabian and Amritesha and Lucilla and we go on a mountain to pray and tomorrow we come back to you. It's a bit frustrating, you know, like uh, what is Jesus going to show to those three? Oh, it's like it's something. So he took three special people. All the twelve apostles are one and the same. And yet, Jesus could extend this one only to three people. He felt that God does not allow him to show it to six. Or to all twelve. Theoretically, he could have done. And he said, I go to pray. If I'm going to say, uh, I'm going a little bit with these guys to meditate. Every one of you will ask, but Swamiji, can we come with you? Can we also meditate with you? No? So the people would have said, you go and pray. You pray harder than usually. We would like to be five meters from you, so we get something from this prayer. No? So it was a special event in some way, because it produces all sorts of reactions, as you can see already. So he said, he took them with him and went up on a mountain to pray. That mountain is Mount Tavor, as I told you. In the Bible, it's sometimes spelled as Tabor. Many of the Hebrews today, they spell it as Tavor on their maps and on their, in their language. As he was praying, so this must have been a very special prayer because people had seen Jesus praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Like people have seen a flash of lightning. Imagine what was there that his clothes became like lightning. Like we can't imagine what was inside those clothes, but his clothes were radiant like the flash of lightning. This is some prayer, you know, it's like I would express my sincere wish that if tonight I do some prayer, my clothes should become like a flash of lightning. No, like this is prayer taken to the level where the flesh is not flesh anymore. The flesh is like plasma, is like hydrogen under fusion. You know, it's a nuclear, like there, you're like the sun. It's not necessarily a sun which generates heat because people don't report having felt heat. It was just a phenomenon of light but imagine how intense it should have been. So here Jesus simply said, I really need to touch base. I need to see Papa a little bit. I need to see Daddy a little bit. I need to give a hug to Daddy here because it's like this thing is going a bit wild. My life here with you, it's going into something very wild. Also, 
It's like I'm so different and some I'm such a crazy hippie and I'm asking of you to live your life against the world. Everybody wants to get, 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 get and I'm telling you what's the use if you get half of the world if you lost your soul. Like he turns the tables on everything. You know, he simply says you should better not have anything but have your soul or something. And then Jesus says, well, you can see that's why I speak like this because I am made, I shine, you know, like in India it says this thing is shining like 10,000 suns or like 10,000 moons. Jesus was shining like 10,000 suns or something. There was something amazing there. And then people could see, you know, it's what kind of prayer is this, you know. They are even today on the face of the earth about five people who claim that they are Jesus. There is an African guy, there is a Russian guy, there is a guy in Australia, and probably there are at least a couple more. You know, There are a couple of schizophrenic people on this planet who say that they are Jesus. But then if we tell them, transfigure a little bit, drink some molten iron like Shankaracharya, you know, like shine like 10,000 suns just for a minute so we can see you are the real deal ah they are not they are not you know which is bullshit because Jesus said I came and even this time when I shone like 10,000 suns this is my humble manifestation when I'm going to come next I'm going to come full on not that somebody can shoot bullets at me or crucify me. I'm going to come as God. And then I'm going to directly shine like 10,000 sunshines, you know? And so on. So it's like, this is his modest life. This is a life where he behaves. And as he behaves, he, his clothes were shining like lightning. This energy which appears is not reported in other places, in the life of Jesus, even when he fasted 40 days in the desert and so on, this light is reported two times. One of them is this, and you would be happy to know that in the Orthodox Church, I don't remember in the Catholic Church if it's the same day or not, but this day is celebrated on the 6th of August, which means very soon. The 6th of August in Orthodox Christianity is the day of the transfiguration. And everybody knows it because this is a very important thing. And then just to anticipate, the second time when this happened, it happened when Jesus was resurrected. When God came back and sent the angel and then there was this light and there was this imprint on this cloth on the Turin Shroud, and then Jesus was alive, breathing again. There were two times that this light showed up in the life of Jesus. One was in the night of his resurrection, and one was on the 6th of August. We don't know if it was 6th of August. In his time, that's how it's celebrated in one of the Christian churches of this planet. And that's the two times when people have seen it. And you know, in Christianity, 
Jesus is like a link for you to see God. Like you can't see God, but there are people who saw Jesus. And they drew him, and they painted him, and they spoke about him. So for 2,000 years, we have a tradition about Jesus. Those who see Jesus, by transitivity, they see God. Like in the famous logical sentence, which says, The friend of my friend is my friend. If you manage to be one with Jesus, Jesus is one with God. So being one with Jesus makes you one with God. Once one with God, and therefore, Jesus is used like a model, like a sort of a symbol, like an interlink. And this is the time when Jesus shows fully his divinity on the day of the transfiguration and on the day of resurrection. That's why, funnily enough, the Christianity split according to these two. The Catholic monks and nuns, they worship the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why, for example, when you see a cross of the Catholics, it always has a Jesus on it. It's very anatomical. If you are going to see Russian crosses or Greek crosses, they don't have any body of Christ on it. Because it has to be more symbolic. It has to be more abstract. So, it's a part of the Catholic mysticism that you have to focus on the pain of the crucifixion and resurrection to catch that light. So you catch God. The friend of my friend is my friend. I am one with Jesus, and Jesus, when he resurrected, he was God. God said, okay, let the whole world see that this man is me, in a mysterious way, is one with me. And thus, you focus on the light of the resurrection. The Orthodox monks from the Eastern Christianity, they they focus on the 6th of August. That's why the date is important to them. They pray, and in their prayer, they try to catch Jesus when he did the transfiguration. Because that was also a moment where he shone like God. And uh, in a certain way, they consider it a more neutral. Like the one in the crucifixion and resurrection, is a, it's a drama. It's a tragedy. It's an extreme thing. While when it is in transfiguration, it's in prayer. It's happy in a certain way. It's simply a spiritual glory. It's a sort of a peak experience. So that's why you can catch Jesus in the transfiguration or in the resurrection. Those are the two points where you identify with Jesus. Uh, This identification concept, which we call in yoga identification, it exists. For example, in in Catholic Christianity, they don't call it identity, identification, because it's a blasphemy for you to say, I'm one with Jesus. And you simply say, I imitate Jesus. There is a famous treatise written by Thomas Akempis, one of the medieval teachers of Catholic Christianity, which is called Imitatio de Jesus Christus. The imitation on the imitation of Jesus Christ. How to imitate Jesus Christ. So you imitate him when he does transfiguration, or you imitate him when God resurrects him. Those are the best moments. It's like NLP. You want to do NLP with Jesus? 
You want to model Jesus? Well, you have to model him when he is at his best. And he is at his best in the transfiguration and in the resurrection. That's when it's the peak experience. So that's why this is a very special thing because Jesus, either because he needed to touch base or because he needed to show something to the world via his disciples, he went to this, you know. It's exactly like he would have said, let me show you a little bit what real prayer looks like. Like, there was a man called Zosima who discovered Mary of Egypt, a female saint who had been a prostitute for 17 years, and then he found her living naked in the desert after 30 years in the desert. She was naked in the desert, scorched by the sun completely, and uh, she made it happen because she was going to die, and she needed a priest to give her communion. It's a very magic story as well. This story of, like the story of Mark of Ethiopia, there have been a few saints, especially the ones living alone, 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 who have produced some of these gigantic miracles. And um, he asked for a blessing, and then he asked to pray with her. And as they were praying, he opened his eyes, and he saw that she was floating about one meter above the sand of the desert. And without opening her eyes, she could feel that he opened his eyes. And she said, yes, Father, you, this is not a delirium. It's not an illusion or something. This is how real prayer is done. This is what Mary of Egypt says. Like when you do real prayer, you float in the air. Your anahata is so open that you become like a bird and you fly in the air. You belong to the air element completely. So... Uh, Jesus here is showing them something bigger than levitation. He just becomes the light. He just shows them, pushes it. Like more than this, he can just dematerialize or explode like an atomic bomb or something, but it would not serve any purpose. Two men, Moses and Elijah, these are old prophets. Remember, they are men. There are two men, very special men, very dear to God, very evolved, very empowered men, but still two men. Two men, Moses and Elijah, like two very special men, appeared in glorious splendor talking to Jesus. They appeared in glorious splendor, which means they were also shining. I don't know how many of you have seen, they're trying to do a bit of a geeky thing out of this, in the Star Wars, in the last Star Wars of the first six episodes, The Return of the Jedi, I think it was called, or something, when finally Darth Vader becomes a good guy and kills the Emperor or whatever, in the end, uh, they are all three dead. Uh, Yoda, Darth Vader, and uh, Ben Obi-Wan Kenobi, and they appear shining. They all of them shine. They semi-materialize as appearances of light. That gives you an idea of what is said about Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appear, but not just as simple flesh and blood. They appear shining also. That's why it says here that they appeared in glorious splendor. 
like also as made of light, you could see that that was something supernal, supernatural. Talking with Jesus. Sure, Jesus, when he is praying, he is visited by a very select company. No, like if you would pray and Moses and Elijah would come to your prayer, you would be in a very good place. No, like you could you could say it's a very good sign, this one. So they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So these people were talking to Jesus, were confirming to Jesus, no, you are not going schizo, this is really what's going to happen, like we see it. Because remember, a human mind can say, is, is it really like, am I going nuts? Am I asked to be crucified and then wait patiently for three days? Like it's maybe too much to ask of a human being, you know? It's like my brain starts believing that I'm maybe getting carried on by too much glory, by too much like people praise me, miracles are happening, and then I'm like, whoa, so better I touch base a little bit. And Moses and Elijah appear to him and say, yeah, you are soon to leave this world, you know, your mission is soon over. Jerusalem, this, that. And then Jesus knows. You know, it's like, I'm not delirious, you know. This is not that I'm making it up and it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, it's like I consulted myself with some of the greatest men that lived in this spiritual environment and who are now with God in the kingdom of heaven, in Shambhala. And from there... They, you know, they tell me, yeah, yeah, no, no, you are not seeing it wrong. It's just the way it's flowing. So, Peter and his companions were very sleepy. That's what's happening when Sahasrara gets activated and normal people cannot follow. It's exactly like Yoga Nidra. It's like you do an astral projection and you fall asleep. You lose continuity. What was happening with Jesus and this, although it was happening in front of them, it was like too much for their brains to carry. It's like, am I dreaming or what, you know? And half of your brain is tempted to just let go, to just switch off. But when they became fully awake, they saw this glory, they became fully awake. Maybe Jesus had pity on them and said, come on. I want you to see this, not to fall asleep and black out. And then when it's over, you wake up and you ask me, Sir, sir, what happened? Guruji, Rabbi, what happened? You know, it's like, okay, see it, so at least the world will know that this really happened. So when they saw it, they saw this glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus... Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And the Bible mentions it very clearly, so you know what it is. He says he did not know what he was saying. Like, he went delirious, you know. It is too much for a human brain to take it. Like, he lost it, you know. Suddenly, he was a Jew. These were Jewish people. 
And suddenly they saw Moses and Elijah, the founders, two of the founding fathers. Moses, you know, the, until today the Jewish religion is sometimes called Mosaic religion, the religion of Moses, because it was to Moses that God gave the tablets of the law and the authority and all this, and the, the, they had the Arch of Alliance and all that stuff, you know, and... These people were seeing Moses and, and Jesus was... No, they maybe have said things. I remember when I was with my first spiritual teacher, one of my friends who was there, he simply found we were 16 years old. We were teenagers, wild teenagers. And he found his presence so holy, which in a communist country was totally unusual... He found the presence of this man so holy that he felt provoked, you know. And after one meeting one day, he said, you know what I did today during this meeting while he was stalling? I just had sexual phantasms on purpose and I got myself a hard-on because I just wanted to see if I can get an erection in the presence of a man who looks so holy, you know. Like when you see something so much, it's like, whoa! No, it's not, it's not something usual. It, it makes you panic, it makes you become confused, like is this really happening? Am I hypnotized? Not to mention that everything looks unreal because it's a vision of extreme light, luminosity, and unusual. And uh, he says, since you came, brought us on this mountain, and then you called on Moses and Elijah, and they came, uh, we can make three shelters, we can make three huts. So that you guys can sleep each one in a hut and, uh, you know, if the rain is coming, you know. Like he was like completely, he wanted to serve God, but he didn't make sense, you know. His logics was like, blah, 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 what you are you saying, you know. Of course, Jesus was probably warmly amused by his poor Peter, who said, I want to make three huts for you, you know. Like he wants to serve me, you know, Jesus you know, it's like, take it easy. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This thing with the cloud, I made with you this year a meditation about the holy light in Jerusalem. Always when this holy light in Jerusalem appears inside the church, outside there is a cloud. There is a formation of clouds. It's never blue skies. It's a strange cloud formation every single time when they do this ritual. And you are going to see it's associated with what much later a Christian mystic wrote, the cloud of unknowing. Like God is uh, hiding behind the cloud precisely as an absolute symbol of the fact that you cannot see God, you cannot talk about God, you cannot explain God. You cannot understand God with the mind, with the intellect. You cannot embrace God with your mind. And that's why there is something like you see it, but you don't. And these people were there and suddenly a cloud came. They were like in a fog. There were low clouds. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Like, you know, you cannot see God. The Jewish prophets have said, whoever sees God face to face, dies. 
You cannot continue your life in the physical body once you have come so close to God. So that's why you can see God when you die. Because then you leave your body anyway. But until you die, the states of samadhi preserve a certain thing that you will not see, or not too much. Kashmiri Shaivas say that, well, something can be achieved visually as well, but even there, if you read again the brochures of your Kashmiri Shaivism, you will see that the highest form of grace makes one person die instantaneously. Like, that's the biggest grace, because you cannot continue in the physical body. The physical body becomes a joke compared to what's happening to the consciousness of that person. And that's why... So, according, you know, when God spoke to Moses, it was an unnatural fire. It was a bush on fire, but the bush was not getting consumed by the fire. So it was a sort of a strange plasma. And then Moses said, but what's your name? And he said, I am I. I am the I am, you know. Ehiech or whatever. You pronounce it like. And thus, very unclear. Like never can, nobody can pierce except by personal experience. Like Jesus is in that state. And then for him the understanding is clear. But Peter and John they look at it, they are not into it, and first of all, they lose their mind, like their mind becomes like, uh, um, maybe we should uh, build three huts for you, it's like, you know, you know, you are not even making any sense, you know, it's like, it's nonsense what you are saying now. And then there came a cloud, and the voice came from the cloud, they could hear a voice, God manifesting not only for visual people, as light, but God manifesting for auditory people as the logos, as the speech, as the vak, the speech of God, the divine speech. And God manifested also as a voice saying, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. Again, Jesus was crucified six months later and they ran away like cowards. It doesn't mean that they listened. And the human mind is weak. We can see miracles over miracles, and then we are just getting... Even Peter, who was a fanatic later and so on, when uh, push came to shove, when the things went really bitter, for a few hours or days, he was scared shitless. And then he came back to his senses and said, come on, you know, what kind of disciples are we? You know, it's like we are pathetic, you know. There were zealots and other patriots, other Jewish patriots, who died more bravely than the disciples of Jesus who were running around like frightened dogs. No? Like there were patriotic people who showed more balls than the disciples of Jesus. No? So it's like, he, he came back to him, but see, they heard it. Again, you can say it's a hallucination, sure. But nevertheless... Light is a hallucination, sound is a hallucination, everything is. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. So, as this came, and then there was no more Moses, there was no more Elijah. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So it's like, appears... 
that they told this story after the resurrection of Christ. Like generally before, between this time and the crucifixion of Christ, they were told to keep it secret. So they haven't said it to the others. The Gospel of Thomas, which was not edited by the church, so you cannot suspect it that that one was altered by some zealots of the Christian church in the 4th century. The Gospel of Thomas, which is originally written in Aramaic, and it is from the 1st century from Thomas, says that after this, Jesus took Thomas aside, maybe because he was a Gemini and he was the smartest of the team or whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, just as a teaser and told him some things. And now there were three people who saw Jesus talking additionally to Thomas and they were like jealous or at least curious and they said, what did he tell you? And Thomas gives a very weird answer in which he says, if I would tell you what this man told me, you would take stones and stone us to death because what I will tell you will be a blasphemy which in the Jewish religion is punishable by instant stoning to death. And then he said, fire would come out of those stones and burn you because actually you are the ones who would do a blasphemy because you don't understand. But what Jesus told me is so much beyond what he's telling us in the daily life I don't know why he chose me to tell me such a difficult thing, but what he told me, you would stone us if you would hear what he told me. So probably Jesus told them, all of you are the sons of God. All of you are God, not only me. No, or something, probably something monistic, something Kashmiri Shaivistic which was a blasphemy in the Jewish environment of those days. Like these people, as well as the Christians and others, they can say, okay, okay, yeah, okay, there is one who is called Jesus. He is not really a human being and he is God. But everyone, others of you, forget about it. You are not God. You should forget about that. It's not true. It's a blasphemy to think that. Like we can accept it about Jesus Christ as the one and only. So, that's why I say, here we are coming to the limits of the human understanding and the limits of the human endurance. And thus, the episode went away. Meditate often. If you want to see Jesus, try to see Jesus transfigured. Look on the online. There are Byzantine icons, Russian, Greek, and all the kinds, which are just go for that, Google for that transfiguration of Christ and look at images and you are going to see a lot of icons and paintings which depict this event it is very much depicted because even the great icon painters and the others they were trying to see Jesus feel Jesus during transfiguration because during transfiguration is like the maximum so, this is a very spectacular event which creates one of the bases for Samyama. You want to identify with Jesus, identify with Jesus in transfiguration. If you want a more extreme or kind of associated with extreme things, the same light manifested 
when he was raised from the dead in his moment of resurrection at midnight between Saturday and Sunday, one day and a half, literally speaking, after he was crucified. So those are the two moments when you see it, but again, in transfiguration, it's like the result of prayer, it's like the result of touching base, recharging batteries, in a certain way you could say reality check. Like, am I going schizo? Or is this real? You know, it's like, see, even Jesus had the common sense to touch base. I'm seeing sometimes people who suffer from some balance, mental balance problems, and when they come to yoga or to other things, sometimes they become more imbalanced because they have some insane visions which they take too seriously. And they don't have the common sense to touch base, like Buddha. That's why Buddha had to touch base. Buddha touched the earth. Because you have to touch the earth to see, is this really happening? Is this really the things are supposed to be? It's not that the earth answers to you, but it's a symbolic gesture which says, whoa, 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 whoa. And thus, you see the great measure, how many things are here. You, you would go to Samadhi, you might want to do like Buddha and touch the ground or control it. No? Yogananda reaches a state of Samadhi. He described in his autobiography, there is a chapter called 30-something, 20-something, which is called An Experience in Cosmic Consciousness, where he describes his first state of Samadhi. I would have never described the state of Samadhi the way he did, provide showing that his brain was very different than mine, and his temperament is very different than mine. What he extracted out of it is very romantic, visual, colorful, everything. I'm not that temperament, so for me, if I would start describing now, I would describe things in a totally different way, equally insignificant, because nothing can describe what is beyond the mind. But he describes it. And then he touches base. Because he had a state of cosmic consciousness which lasted for long enough, like probably more than half an hour. Like it was a profuse state of samadhi. And then in the very next chapter, he goes to Yukteswar, to his guru, and he says, uh, Swamiji or Guruji, show me God. Like you've just had a state of samadhi and you want your guru to show you God. That's touching base, because the state of samadhi in itself is not necessarily clarifying things the way you thought it will clarify them. And then Yukteswar is telling him exactly this. He said, you've been in samadhi and you ask me to show you God, but try to realize that what you have experienced there, this, this, he explains to him, this is what God actually is. And it's not what God actually is, but it is what a normal human being can understand from God. So even Yogananda has to touch base. 
Buddha did not have a guru. So he had to touch the earth and draw his own conclusions. Yogananda, fortunately for him, he had a guru. And when he was like, uh, 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 what was that? He went to the guru. And he said, show me God. You know, like uh, I did yoga, I had a state of samadhi, but I still want to see God. And Yukteswar tells him, surprise, you've seen him and not seen him. You know, you've just experienced God, but you were looking for something else and you didn't see, as we say in Romania, you didn't see the forest because of the trees. There are too many trees and you failed to see the forest. But the trees are the forest. You, you were looking at it, but you are looking for something else. So in this way, Yogananda touches base. Well, even Jesus going to a much higher level than Yogananda, Jesus is no more and no less than preparing to save the world. Like, forget about the megalomania that you reach Samadhi and you've seen God. Not only that, but you prepare to save the world for everybody. Even Jesus felt like touching base a little bit, you know, like talking to Moses and Elijah and saying, you know, am I dreaming or what's this? And they told him, no, no, you will go to Jerusalem. You will leave your body soon. Yeah, it's right. What, what you see is not some schizophrenic trip. It's actually what God is doing. It's the way things are flowing right now. So, then the events continue, and because I want to be here with you until 10.30 to not, uh, uh, you know, deprive you of too much time in these things, I will start the next episode. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. It will just give me the opportunity that next time, next week, I will warm up on this. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, so they stayed on the mountain a whole day and night, a large crowd met him. Like, of course, this keeps the mystique. He was going from village to village. People knew him. He had fed 5,000 people. He had raised this little girl. From You know, people were crazy about Jesus. And then they were coming every day. A hundred were coming, a hundred were going, and so on. And then uh, somebody tells them, well, the master is not here. He is with John and Peter. He's praying on the mountain. Like, of course, everybody was drooling for it, you know, like, wow, you know. Now he, and then in the morning, he's coming back like Moses came back from Mount Sinai, you know. It's like uh, people are hot. A man in the crowd called out. Now people knew what to expect. Now Jesus was in the fullness of his mission and everything. And the man simply says, a teacher I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. He scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Like when Jesus was not there, the disciples were the big guys. But in this situation, it was so bad... They could not. This description sounds very close to epilepsy. This young boy apparently was having epileptic seizures or 
as you can see, people condemn me when I talk about demons and demonized people and so on and influences. But at the time of Jesus, as well as in all the traditional religions, this was considered the sign of possession. Even epileptic people were considered possessed by a demon. Because I don't know if ever any one of you has seen an epileptic seizure. I suppose you can see them on YouTube these days. You know? But if you have seen, you know that an epileptic seizure in its average form looks horrible and frightening. Like the people who have a seizure for two minutes, they look like one to five minutes, the average is about two minutes, they feel like they are possessed by demons. They look terrible. They foam at the mouth. They have movements and actions in the body which look completely dark, scary. Like the resonance of what that body gives is a very unpleasant resonance. There is no epileptic seizure which is sweet and sympathetic. None. No? And thus, uh, here we are talking about a very intense possession. This boy apparently had often seizures because his father said uh, it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. So these epileptic things must have happened often, probably once a day, two times per day, something which is very much the average epileptic person has a seizure every one week, every ten days, maybe once a month, but it can be very often and then your brain system is very stretched. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. At which Jesus, coming from the transfiguration, no, like he comes from a peak experience which is unique in his life, except on resurrection, we see it again. Jesus notices that the Father has a little bit of skepticism because he says, your disciples tried, but they could not. So it's like, let's see if you can. There is a trigger there and also at the disciples because the, he knows that the fact that the disciples could not do it it's because they still have doubts they still have um, reservations about it and then Jesus speaks quite harsh he says oh unbelieving and perverse generation believe me if the Jews at the time of Jesus were an unbelieving and perverse generation then the world in 2019 is way way below that because generally these people were very religious and what's happening today it's way below that level so imagine how stupefied would be Jesus about what's happening today compared with that time, which was a relatively puritanical time. He says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. He says, generation. Like, you are not like in the time of Moses. You are not in those days. Kali Yuga was not so old. 
and people were a bit more fresh. But now you've become, you know, and he calls them unbelieving, like lack of faith, and perverse. Perverse. Manipura, perversity in the Jewish environment. Perhaps today if Jesus would come to the New York village, he would also call them perverse, but it's Vadistana perversity, not so much Manipura perversity. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? But you see very clearly that he knows he's going to go away. He knows he has a limited mission. He knows that his mission is to make people not be unbelieving and perverse, correcting them. And he would say, I have raised two, three people from the grave. I have stopped storms and walked on water. I have given sight to the blind and this. I have removed demons by the scores. And if I'm going away for 24 hours, my disciples cannot even eliminate an epileptic demon. Like he says, what will happen if I'm going away for good? Now, like, what will this world become? He can see it. He is very, very aware about these things. And he says, how long shall I stay with you? Like, how many people have I tried to raise from the dead? I have to raise from the dead one every three days. Or what should I do? So you guys should have faith. How often? How many? What should I do? Because you guys forget a week later and you've all forgotten. And then I have to start from scratch. So he says, I want to leave a religion. I want to leave a fact that people believe in my message and they do it. And I've just been one night and my disciples cannot eliminate a demon of some epileptic boy. He is appalled, you know. He says, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? You also see from this a very clear Vishuddha Ajna Sahasrara conclusion. Jesus is not very happy to be in a physical body and walk through Palestine. He gets dirty on his feet. His nose gets dry from the dry air desert, desert air. He's thirsty. The water is sometimes lukewarm and shitty. They didn't have refrigerators in those days. You know, at least I, when I get thirsty, I go home and drink a cold soda and put some lemon in it, and I feel great. But Jesus didn't even have that. There was no cold soda at the time of Jesus. You know? And it's like, Jesus is not very happy. You know, people can be happy to be alive. But Jesus says, I'm coming from a place from where this thing that you guys call life, and you think you are doing great, it's like a punishment. It's like a torture. I have to eat. I have to make caca. I have to talk to you all day long and you don't even believe what I'm telling to you. I mean, you know, like, he says, how long do I have to have this ordeal of staying in a human body, which for me is such a limiting condition, and just because I have to show you what is possible with God. You can see that for Jesus, the situation is very different. First of all, he cannot understand how people's minds are so opaque, so obtuse. 
And on the other hand, he says, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? It's a test, you know. It's like you are going to a mental hospital or something, and then after half an hour you say, how long are we going to stay? Because I start going crazy myself. I'm staying here with all these cuckoos in this, with all these bazakos in this hospital, and they are all attacking me and telling nonsense. And I, like, I would like to stop this visit and go home. No? It's like it's unpleasant, actually. Of course, it's an act of love. It's an act of identification. It's a spiritual gift. It is about saving the planet Earth and giving it its spiritual momentum. But you can see that Jesus, at some point, he expresses, like he's exasperated, you know, like, you know, like, how long am I going to have to put up with this shit? So in a certain way, for him, death is like a liberation, you know, it's like, okay, I finished my mission. In a certain way, I'm so happy to be out. Jesus never made an effort to say, well, I was resurrected, that proved the point. I have the rainbow body. I can appear and disappear. I'll stay with you for another three, four years until things become clear. No. He just stayed for 40 days. He raised to heaven. And au revoir. You know, it's like there is... I'm not really interested. For us, it's a totally different perspective. And then he says, bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. It's a well-known thing that when a powerful healing is coming, especially epileptic seizures, come one last time. In India, there were Babas, which are quoted, who had a very powerful pranayama and a very powerful pranic body, and they could produce healing, and um, the person who came in their presence, they had an epileptic seizure one last time. It's like the last crisis, it's a way to take the demon out as well, precisely because of the crisis. The same thing is known about the stick of Athanasius in Mount Athos. There is this metal rod which he used to beat demons up, And this rod, which I touched, has the reputation that if an epileptic person touches it, they have a seizure right there in that minute on the spot, and then epilepsy stops. So it's it's completely conversant with what we have seen that is happening concerning with this type of crisis, peak experience healing. So... As he came, as they brought the boy, the boy already started having an epileptic seizure. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. That's his policy. Now, Jesus, what did he do? He rebuked the evil spirit. He rebuked. He did the same with the pigs before, and those of you who remember... He rebuked. I can say Jesus didn't love the demons like Shiva. Everything is one. Well, Jesus says everything is one. Fuck off to hell where you came from, you know. Like, there doesn't need to be any hippie 
love. There is no flower power with Jesus, you know. That, oh, brothers, I am you and you are I. And, you know, that's nonsense in the meaning that it's useless. The epileptic boy and his father, they are looking for a clear cut separation. And Jesus produces that clear cut separation. But how does he do it? He rebuked the evil spirit. Rebuked. There are prayers in Christianity inherited from Jesus, especially from St. Basil the Great. If you read three minutes of that prayer, you get goosebumps. It's like you go to hell. It's so terrible. It's so aggressive. It's so, it says, mm, I don't know how they address the devil, but by the demons, by some very bad names, no, they call them some very bad names, you know, and they say, oh, stinky one or something. I scold you by the power of the one who walked on the sea and stopped the storm. Like they scold the demons. They rebuke them, you know. They simply said, you are, it's wrong that you came here. Fuck off. Shoo. Go away, you know, like there is no friendly, oh dear friend, demon, maybe you'd like to go three steps to the left and give us some peace. No, they just go with a big hammer. They come with a big hammer, although you can say that Jesus is the universal love and the Son of God. He did not, this is there, you know, sometimes people say, Swamiji, maybe you should act with more love. Yeah, with a hammer. That's what Jesus teaches us. Hammer is the love of Jesus, you know? It's not uh, always, yes, whenever it can be like this, surely love is being practiced in its expressed forms. But here, it's the lesser evil. It's the life of this boy, or a demon came from hell, who is having fun with the body of this boy. And then among the two evils... The better alternative is that the boy should become healthy and be given back to the society and maybe even become a spiritual practitioner and pray to God. And therefore Jesus says, Demon, what are you doing here? Shoo! Fuck off! You don't belong here. You are wrong. But you don't love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Back to hell. Back to hell. You know, it's like, although I love you, your place is not here. Back to hell. Love doesn't mean that I have to become all mushy and kind of, yeah, but sure, you are from hell, but maybe we find a little place for you around here. It doesn't work like this with Jesus. He's very sharp about the things. He rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Beautiful. They were not amazed at the great at the power of Jesus. They were amazed at the greatness of God. Jesus was doing it the right, the right way, with consecration, with humbleness, not forgetting to mention God, so that people's admiration was not going so much to Jesus as it was going to God. Jesus was making himself like an instrument of the Divine Presence. 
which is very beautiful. It shows the correct spirit of karma yoga. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, people outside, what should they do? You know, it's like, whoa, you know? He said to his disciples, now he, to his disciples, he had a different message. Like people are like, wow, are you also going to go, wow, you know, like you're a bunch of idiots, you know, I'm trying to make you be my followers. You are the next generation, you know. So it's like, don't just go, wow, because that's not about it. And he said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. Like he told them, the time is coming close. I've been to Mount Tabor, and there Moses and Elijah, they told me that I'm not raving. That this is actually happening. It's coming. I have seen it right. I thought that maybe I had some delirium because I drank too much wine or ate too much fish or something, you know. But Moses and Elijah told me it's the real deal. No? And then he's telling to them, you know, it's like, you don't want this to happen again. I'm going and you are incapable. Then what's the use of what I'm teaching to you? And he said, listen, everybody is in awe, but listen to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man, that is him, is, about, is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. But they did not understand what this meant. Mysteriously. It's like Jesus didn't say, I can see you are a bit stupid. Let me make a diagram on the board so you can all understand. No, even Jesus, he was a little bit cryptical. He just said short sentences, oblique. And it's like, if people don't understand, they don't understand. And that's it. Because they had to, they had to make their own choices when this time would come. And, you know, they did not understand what he was meant. It was hidden from them. Guess by who? By God himself. Because Shiva is the magician. God did some hocus pocus and they somehow it was told to them, but they didn't hear it clear. And if somebody would come tomorrow and say, didn't Jesus tell you this? They would say, yeah, now that you mention it, yes, I can see that it was mentioned, but I don't know how. It's like we were all a bit careless in that day and we kind of didn't grasp it. Like we didn't grasp something very important. Because, you see, they wouldn't have had this test. If Jesus would have told them for three months, every day, let's take it again, let's prepare for the big events that are coming. I'm going to be arrested. A lot of untrue and unfair things are going to be said about me. This, that, what will you do? Then slowly, slowly they would have been prepared, exactly like a CIA operative, that is trained to deal with a lie detector, or is trained to deal with torture up till a point and so on, it's because they are trained, that's their job, if they are spies or something. So Jesus could have trained them like spies. Something bad is going to happen in six months. What are you going to do, Peter? No, and if Peter would have been prepared, he would have been much more manipuristic and prepared for the things. But you can see that when this thing happened, it's like he was not prepared at all. 
it took him almost by surprise, although Jesus told them. So Jesus told it to them in a way that they didn't really pay attention. And that was a karmic thing because they had to be tested. They had to be there. And it says it was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. That's exactly how it manifests. Then you ask people, why didn't you dig into this thing? I was afraid that maybe he doesn't want to speak about it. Jesus would have spoken about it, but none of them had the spirit of Ajna Chakra, what the Swami Shivananda says, that you have to have a bold mind. It's something which I was telling the other day, that our friends here in Agama who are Aries, astrologically, the Ariases have a bold mind. Like sometimes even when I see that they are embarrassed to ask something, they ask, they kind of go a little bit in overdrive, and they say, okay, if I'm going to lose my head, I'm going to lose my head, but I'm just going to ask this fucking question. And they ask. This is the boldness of the mind. It's the boldness of the spirit. Look in your papers. What gives boldness to your Ajna Chakra? I really want an answer if any one of you has an answer. Do you remember one thing in your yoga practice that makes your mind bold? Because it's written exactly like this in your papers. Garudasana, my dear friends. Garudasana. Read the theory to Garudasana. That's why your theory is much deeper written than you think. If you will read it five times over, every time when you will read it, you will describe in Garudasana, it is said very clearly that Garudasana makes the mind bold. That's what is meant with it. That the disciples of Jesus were mysteriously shy. And they said, um... Maybe we shouldn't probe too much into this. He didn't seem to enjoy talking to us about it. It's also a very unpleasant subject. Maybe he got it wrong and it will never happen. So let's not dwell on this. Exactly like sometimes you talk about things, about demons. And people don't ask, Swamiji, can you see any demons in me? No, like nobody ever in 30 years of teaching yoga has asked me if I can see one demon in them, in their lives, in their behavior. Nobody dares. Because maybe some people are afraid that I will say yes, and then they will have to do tapas for six months to take it out, to do trataka three hours every day to take it out, or something. So then people, but the demon also says, I better don't ask about this. I'm afraid to ask this question. And other and other questions. There are many, tantra, sexual tantra. How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do, it's like, uh, you know, Swamiji is famous that he hypnotizes women and rapes them. How do you do that, Swamiji? Is that possible? If a man wants to get a woman to sleep with him, in whichever conditions, can he do something about it? Nobody has asked me this question, but all the guys would like to have that power a little bit, just in case. Just in case you encounter a bit too much resistance, 
to be able to apply a bit of extra pressure would not be the discrete, no, legal, legal, not punishable by the law. Some telepathic little thing. or No, nobody asks, but it's on everybody's mind. Women don't ask, Swamiji, if men can do this, how can women make it not happen? No? Like there are a million questions which I don't get and which would be questions coming from a bold mind. To have a bold mind. Like Star Trek, right? To boldly go where no man has gone before. Has your mind boldly gone where no man has gone before? No. Milarepa's mind has. Shankaracharya's mind, Abhinava Gupta's mind has. So, for that, you need Brahmacharya to have ojas, and you need to have a bold mind. You need to have a solar Ajna Chakra so you can control a little bit your mind and ask the relevant questions. There are so many relevant questions which break a lot of seals. And uh, therefore, you can see it with Jesus. Jesus is intimating to them, you can't even take out demons. I'm not going to be for long with you. I'm going to be betrayed. They are going to say, you know, they could have said, who will betray you? Do you know who will betray you? Yes. Will you tell us? No. But I'm going to ask you tomorrow morning again. Please, 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 if you love me, can you tell me who will betray you? Like, I can try any form of emotional blackmail to make Jesus tell me the secret. And then I'm going to Judas, and I'm giving him three fists in the face, and he said, I heard a little bird told me that you are the one who is going to betray Jesus. I'm going to cut your balls if you do that. I'm going to beat the shit out of you every day, you know? Like, I... Something, you know? Let's break the patterns. Let's break the limitations. Let's break the hypnosis. Let's break the karma. All this story of Jesus is like a fatal story, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It goes on and on, and nobody stops it. Nobody stops it. It just goes and happens as it was supposed to happen. Look at the events which happened with Agama in the last one year. And you will see it's like a fatality, you know. It's like some things have gone from one step to the other, from coincidence to coincidence, you know. And I can give you other examples if you say I'm talking about Agama. I had a friend who was caught by the police in Thailand for overstaying his visa for 12 hours. And he was, he spent in prison more than a month. I have been to Bangkok and stayed in hotels just trying to be there. I have hired three different lawyers from three different organizations. To, I, if I would tell you that story, it's not appropriate for this uh, satsang. But if I would tell you that story, that one month story, it's like a story of endless negative coincidences. It's negative coincidence over negative coincidence over negative coincidence over... If I would write it, you would think that it's a joke. You'd think that it's some uh, trumped-up Hollywood movie that such a thing does not exist in real life. 
major four to five, six coincidences in a line, which made that a thing which was nothing resulted in a one month of prison done for nothing. That's karma. That's how karma works. That's why in the case of Jesus, where it was a planetary karma, things were really, really big. And the question is, the boldness of the spirit. This solar aspect of Ajna Chakra is the only one that can defeat the karma. That's why we tell to our students, if you develop your Ajna Chakra in a certain way, you will start having this bold spirit which will make you sometimes, but sometimes no. It's like, uh, I'm tired today. No? And you postpone 24 hours. It's another 24 hours of the negative karma simply because you've been too tired. It happens to me. I have postponed important things just because I felt that sometimes squashed squashed, tired to a level where I felt that somebody was grinding my bones, crushing them and grinding them in the mattress of the bed. No? Because there are forces which try to keep you down. And the amount of stubbornness and willpower, that's why I said Arius's, no, because they have that one, the amount of stubbornness and willpower that you have to get is almost heroic. It's almost like you are half dead and you stand up and go to battle or something. You know, it's like, like nothing can stop you. That kind of ajna is required to bend some things in terms of karma or in terms of the mission of Christ. So it's interesting to read this and to say that they did not understand. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp it. And last cherry on top of the cake, they were afraid to ask him about it. Why? Jesus didn't tell. Whoever asks me about it, I shall send them to hell. I'm really getting pissed off when you're asking me about this. No. And still, the hypnosis worked in such a way that they say, I don't think we should ask about that. It's wonderful. It reveals something wonderful from the standpoint of karma and ajna chakra. I think it is enough for tonight. You've got some food for the thoughts. I'll see you in the coming events here in Agama. With this, we are done.